good morning, everyone. Uh, we have a fantastic panel here this morning. Um, I feel like any one of these speakers could be a keynote at an event like this. So really honored to have them all on stage together. Um, so we have a very bold topic, how crypto changes everything, uh, the future of finance uh, and culture. Um, I think for those of us who work in the crypto industry, uh, we really do see on the horizon that crypto networks and the tokens involved with them are incredibly powerful and are going to change the way we do so many things, um, not just finance. So very excited about the discussion today. Um, real quickly, I'd like to introduce everybody, uh, then we'll dive right in. Um, I'm Kristen Smith. I'm the executive director of the Blockchain Association, which is a trade association based in Washington, D.C. We work on crypto policy issues on behalf of the crypto industry. Uh, to my left here, we have Sam Bankman-Fried. Um, for those in the crypto space, this man needs no introduction. He is um, one of the youngest, brightest minds um, in this space. I also super love his personal style and his hair, uh, FTX, that uh, is a crypto derivatives exchange, um, and then uh, FTX US, which is the uh, US component to that, and he's also co-founded Alameda Research. Um, to his left, we have Anatoly Yakovenko, who is the founder and CEO of Solana Labs, um, which is the um, creator of the Solana blockchain, which for those of you who follow crypto prices, last week, everything was down double digits, but Solana tokens were up. It's been an amazing <laughs> ride for Solana. They're definitely having a moment right now. Very exciting. Uh, to his left, we have Jeremy Allaire, who I've had the pleasure of knowing for several years now. Um, Jeremy is the CEO and founder of Circle, uh, which was founded way back in 2013. So they've been around for a long time. Circle helped create uh, USDC, which is a dollar-backed stablecoin, which is very important um, for many of the DeFi applications, which we'll get into later today. But um, also one of the founding members of the Blockchain Association, so wouldn't be here without Jeremy. Um, and last but not least, we have Kevin O'Leary, who is, um, many of you probably already know, is the um, co-host of Shark Tank, um, but also has become a recent convert into the cryptocurrency space and has um, as the primary investor in a platform called WonderFi, which aims to bring DeFi uh, to the masses. So really a fantastic panel. Um, one quick thought before we get started is uh, several years ago, Mark Andreessen wrote a very famous um, piece, I believe it was in the Wall Street Journal, that said, software is eating the world. Uh, crypto is software. And as a good friend of mine, uh, Amanda Cassett, pointed out to me last week, that means crypto is eating the world. And I think um, what our conversation today will hopefully um, help you uh, hone in and grasp this point. Um, so with that, why don't we start with you, Sam? Um, I want to talk about culture a little bit before we get into the finance piece. Um, FTX has engaged with some major celebrities. Before we get into how crypto is impacting culture, can we talk a little bit about how culture is impacting crypto and what you see that role is in bringing crypto to the masses? Totally. Um, you know, I, thanks for having me, first of all, Kevin. Um, when we think about, you know, where crypto is today, and I think even more so where FTX is, we're one of the newest crypto platforms, certainly the newest of the large ones. Um, you know, we're really proud of what we've built, and I think there's a lot of exciting things going on in crypto. Um, and despite all the adoption that we've seen for the ecosystem over the last few years, it still is touching a pretty small fraction of the world. 
when you put it into context, you know, a pretty small fraction of transactions are happening through crypto, a pretty small fraction of, you know, people transact with crypto in any ways. And so I think a lot of what we've been thinking is like, what are ways that we can take what we see as an exciting, growing set of products and industry and sort of introduce them to tens of millions of people in a way which doesn't dilute the brand, but instead sort of strengthens and underscores it. Um, you know, we've been working with with Tom Bray, we've been working with Steph Curry, with Major League Baseball, uh, with uh, TSM and, and others. And, and I think that a lot of what we're looking at there is how do we get tens of millions of people engaged with the cryptocurrency ecosystem? Um, and, you know, we could buy tens of millions of Facebook ads, and I don't know, maybe we should. Um, at some point, we'll hire a team to look into to, to, to whether that, that is worth doing. But that's not a thing which is going to really make an, the same sort of impact on people. Anyone can sort of, you know, potentially do that. Um, and instead, what we've really been looking for, like core partners, that we're really excited about and are really excited about us um, and, you know, who can help represent us and who we can really work with in a way to build something kind of stronger and more powerful than what we had. And, and you know, I think I'll, I'll let him talk about it more, but we've been working, you know, with, with uh, Kevin as well on this, which, you know, really excited about. Um, and, uh, and sort of on another matter, we've been working with Jeremy and Tully on the product side a lot, which has been super exciting too. Awesome. Um, Anatoly, maybe we could go to you for a second. Uh, so Solana, I always thought of Solana originally, which by the way, I had heard about for the first time from your son, Jeremy, who told me to buy <laughs> it like 18 months ago. And I really regret not doing that. I think you heard about um, it. <laughs> but, um, uh, but Anatoly, when I first thought about Solana, I thought of it for uh, decentralized finance or DeFi applications. But it turns out it's also been a great place for NFTs and actually just like over the weekend, there was an NFT that was sold on Solana that was valued at over a million dollars for the first time. So super exciting. Can you talk a little bit about what the role of blockchains is on culture and how artists are getting involved and some of the cool things that uh, you're working on there? For sure. Um, I think the, the beauty of this technology is that it really gives the tools for artists to scale their work globally without depending on you know traditional finance infrastructure where if you're an artist that wanted to sell paintings you know 100 million dollars worth of volume of paintings you would need galleries lawyers you know like legal support in every jurisdiction in the world and that's just a huge ask right for for an up-and-coming artist you really need to build up to that level but with blockchain those rules are enforced with software and they're unbreakable so somebody that, you know, catches the right idea at the right time can, you know, spend, you know, maybe a day, maybe it, it took him like years to build this. But if they release it on chain, they're guaranteed that the financial support that they need is already there. That And it's free, right? And, and the, the code and kind of the infrastructure that is based on blockchain is designed to, you know, really give as much value to the artist as possible and extract the least amount of value from the process. That's really the goal of this technology is like, how do you eliminate the, the sand and the gears? Um, so Jeremy, NFTs are for much more than um, just artwork. Can you talk about some of the other types of assets that 
um, can be incorporated into NFTs, and then also um, what Circle is doing um, to help empower some of these businesses. Sure, yeah. I mean, I think the way that, that we look at it, I mean, the, the general concept is crypto is really good at, uh, you know, kind of proving uh, a record. It's great at, at establishing provenance of ownership. It's, um, it, you know, and, and allowing that ownership to be highly liquid and exchangeable and tradable. And I think uh, a lot of people years ago, if you remember, like the 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 interest in the space was like, how do you tokenize real estate or how do you tokenize uh, stock in a company or real world things? And I think what NFTs really represent is that the the, the friction um, is pretty high when you cross over into those established kind of jurist, you know, uh, sort of legal um, frameworks. But with intellectual property, especially digital intellectual property, the barriers are super low. And so it's naturally, I think, the first place where you're seeing this really explode. And that obviously is is finding its way in particular kind of creative expression, creative outlets, but it's it's now kind of you know moving into other arenas. So owning moments, owning entitlements, um, owning brands that are attached to entitlements, all these kinds of things that were hard to do are now really easy to do. And so there's just a huge amount of experiment experimentation beyond that. Um, and uh, you know, I think. I don't know if I have it right, Sam, but I think you could buy like a pair of FTX socks that includes a lunch with you or something like that, <laughs> but um, <laughs> something like that. Pretty powerful stuff. Um, but <laughs> in, in all seriousness, I, I think um, what we're seeing is just lots and lots of people who are trying to take lots of categories of intellectual property and digital intellectual property and represent that using this kind of methodology. And, uh, and so what we're doing, I mean, basically, I mean, we provide kind of payment and treasury infrastructure for digital currency applications, for financial applications. And the, one of the very fastest growing categories is just people building different types of NFT apps, NFT markets, these kinds of things. And we're really just trying to make it really simple and seamless for people to go from the legacy fiat system into actual digital currency so you can transact in these markets and transact with these items. So we're a bit of an arm supplier to all the different people who are trying out lots of different stuff in, in creating um, NFTs. Um, so, Kevin, as a bit of a cultural icon yourself, um, what brought you to crypto? It, it seems that, that this wasn't something you were always bought in on. What, what changed your mind and what makes you excited about this space? You know, I was a um, very vocal uh, non-advocate in, back in 2017 because I, I, I'm forced to live in a world, I service uh, pension funds and institutions with indexing. We, we are... 100% compliant 100% of the time. And my first purchase was not in our operating company. I just bought some Ethereum and some Bitcoin in a wallet myself back in 2017. And one day just talked about it in the, in, on, you know, on television, on business press. And my compliance officer called me up while I was still in the green room saying, are you out of your mind? Are you out of your mind? You know, we cannot have this dialogue and because we're going to get a call. And sure enough, we did. And what's changed is the regulatory environment because I don't have the option to be non-compliant. I don't even have that at all. But slowly and surely, in other jurisdictions first, Switzerland, Germany, France, Australia, England, Canada, which has allowed uh, ETFs now with, with uh, Ethereum and with Bitcoin, so I changed when the regulator changed, and I'm very interested in crypto now as an asset class. And in my world, let's say um, 
let's say you're running a, a, a billion dollar mandate, which is a typical mutual fund or ETF or whatever. And generally, if you're compliant with your own compliant department, they'll, there's 11 sectors in the S&P, for example. Uh, you're allowed to go up to 20% in any one sector and up to 5% in any one name. That's generally how it works. I argue today that crypto is the 12th sector of the S&P. That's what it is. It doesn't mean I have to have everything in Bitcoin, and I don't want to have everything in Bitcoin. I want to have a portfolio of crypto coin, chain, you know, tokens, whatever is compliant. And what's going to happen here and, and what, what we need to do and why I'm so happy we have these dialogues and these conferences, think about the typical institution. Every night at 401, they mark to market every position they have. The internal compliance department sees it. How much leverage is used, what the positions are, is it within mandate, not over 5%, whatever it is. Then their external auditors come in on a weekly or quarterly or annual basis and sign those audited statements. Then they issue that report to the regulator. We don't have that infrastructure in crypto right now. There's, on this stage, there's two guys trying to do it, Sam at FTX and Jeremy here at, uh, with Circle, and I'm definitely involved with both of them because I want to be getting that, but it took me months just to get my first purchase done with, on Circle with my own compliance department barking at me like a dog saying, no, 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 we can't do this. And I'm saying, we got to do it. We got to get there. We have to figure it out. And my auditor and the regulated reports we have put out. And it's working. Same with Sam. I want to build a portfolio on FTX, you know, because it's big enough that I can be compliant. It's, I'm the, and I'm saying to everybody on this, if we solve this, there's trillions of dollars coming into this in the 12th sector of the S&P. That's what it's going to be. So that's our job. We've got to solve for compliance. It's boring, but it really matters. Well, yeah, and as somebody who's on the ground in Washington, looking at the regulatory side, uh, we have had some great progress, but there are still um, some things that if we could clear up, I think would address that misconception that, that many um, sort of compliance teams have. So, um, well, why don't we pivot then into financial services um, a little bit? Because, um, you know, we do believe that that finance is one of the first places that we're seeing um, crypto networks have an impact. Um, and maybe we'll start actually with you, Anatoly. Can you talk a little bit about Solana and why it's different from other blockchains and what are the types of decentralized finance services that are being built on top of Solana? Sure. Um, in, in a lot of ways, Solana is, uh, you know, in ideologically very close to every other blockchain. It's a decentralized ledger that records every event that happens on it. Uh, the differences in, in terms of like the architecture, how it's built, is that it's designed for speed. It's a technology. And when I think of technology, I think of Moore's Law, Intel, the folks that, you know, uh, build chips that are faster and faster every two years. If you, you're building a technology, then as those guys make progress, your technology should get cheaper and faster. And this is the core thesis of how we architected the whole thing, is that every two years when Intel, AMD ships a faster and cheaper chip, then the network itself gets twice as performant, has more bandwidth, more capacity, and the cost to users should drop accordingly. And that's really the thesis of it. Can we build a, a network that extracts the least amount of value from the applications running on top of it? Um, and the rest is a, a high-performance operating system. 
that, you know, my, in my case, I, I spent my career at Qualcomm building, you know, Brew and a bunch of mobile operating systems. A lot of the ideas that went into developing those are now being developed on, on top of Solana. Um, and we see it as um, a kind of a technology that is very well aligned to the tools and development practices that were prevalent at like, you know, places like Apple, Intel, Google, and, and stuff like that. That's very cool. Um, Sam, you own an exchange, you own a derivatives exchange and crypto exchange, um, but you've also been involved with Project Serum, a decentralized exchange. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that works and, um, you know, and maybe to slowly ease into the regulatory conversation, um, any sort of regulatory concerns you have around that? Yeah, so really the genesis for that was, you know, we started looking at DeFi a year ago, well, I guess a year and a half ago now. Um, and what became clear really quickly was that, first of all, there were some really cool things going on in DeFi. Um, and I think just to illustrate part of that, if you have a DeFi protocol, right, which, which basically it's a company or a program or, you know, some protocol, some sort of system, which is built entirely into a blockchain, it's all transparent. It's 100% transparent. It's 100% predictable. What will happen given how people interface with it? And that means that if a third party comes and wants to integrate that protocol, they can. And you can get potentially this sort of exponential explosion of creativity and innovation because all of these different parts can be composable into each other. If you build a borrow lending protocol, then any other protocol on that blockchain can integrate it natively in, which just doesn't work in centralized finance in the, you know, in the same way. Um, and so it was really cool. There's a ton of hype around it. Um, and it also absolutely sucked to use. Like it was unbelievably bad. Um, and for those who, I think for those who haven't used DeFi, and, and a lot of those who have, it's worth just running side by side a DeFi protocol and a centralized one, just reminding yourself of how painful it sometimes is. Um, and the reason is it was taking five minutes to finalize a transaction because the blockchain was completely overwhelmed. It cost $50 to click a button because you had to outbid everyone else trying to get their transactions in. Um, and what became clear really quickly was that scaling, the sort of problem of scaling a blockchain wasn't one of the 17 constraints on a blockchain. It was the single blocker to mass adoption. You cannot have a billion people using a chain that has 10 transactions per second. It just doesn't work. Like there's no two ways around it. That math doesn't work. And in order to take these programs and scale them to masses um, or even scale them to a single large enterprise, you needed to get into tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of transactions per second. Just take your favorite big enterprise, right? Whether it's a protocol, a company, a, a messaging protocol, whatever. It's going to have a million transactions a second. That's sort of like what it means to have a billion users. Um, and you needed a blockchain that could keep up with that. So we just sort of had phone calls with a lot of blockchains. Um, and I don't know, our call with Solana was very different than our calls with other blockchains. Like sort of, you know, one of the first things that, that Nantoli said was like, hey, you know, we've been thinking about like how many transactions do we need to do? things like we want to get wherever we need to get and like here's where we are now and here's a place you can go test it out and and and, and so anyway you know what we've um i think gotten really excited about is a lot of the applications that are being built on solana um 
and I, I think it's it's one of the few places in DeFi right now where you can see it scaling to a billion users. And it's not there right now. Um, it probably has another factor of, what, 50 to go or something. Um, but that's a lot better than a factor of 50,000. Um, you know, and, and, and like Tully said, one of the founding sort of principles of Solana is that it gets better over time, that it gets better with Moore's Law, that it, it has an ambition to be able to service billions of users with millions of transactions per second. Um, and, and we just see that sort of the holy grail of what DeFi could become. And soon we've helped, um, you know, people build out uh, DEXs on the Solana blockchain, you know, Serum being one of them. Um, you know, we've, it, I don't know, I've sort of invested in a number of projects on the Solana blockchain in the Serum ecosystem. Uh, we've worked a lot with Jeremy, um, who, uh, you know, Circle has uh, added Solana support for USDC, it's stablecoin which now all of a sudden you have sort of a massively scalable, stable object that can act as a pricing reference and pricing currency for transactions happening and for payments happening on Solana. And again, you go to a payment company and, and you're like, hey, can you try to integrate crypto? And they're like, great, we have 17,000 payments per second in this subclass that we'd like to test out on your network. How does that sound? And your, your answer better be like, yeah, we can make that work rather than like, can you try 17 without the thousand? Um, and that's really where it all came from. It, nothing is there yet. No DeFi protocols are at the level where, you know, centralized protocols have to be quaking in their boots because they're going to be overtaken tomorrow. But that's not the goal. The goal is moving, making progress, and building the fundamentals and this, the infrastructure of something that could get there, that could get to a point where real large systems decide that it is the correct decision for their business to build on a blockchain. And I think optimistically, we're, you know, a year or two away from, from getting real adoption there, if the industry kind of builds its products right, plays its cards right. Um, and I'm really excited about sort of that progress. Yeah, no, I think um, when I'm in Washington, and I'm talking to policymakers, they don't, they're like, this stuff isn't useful. There's nothing that anyone's actually doing with this. It's improving their lives. And I'm constantly having to reframe the conversation to this is still early stages. And there's a lot of great development that's going to lay the groundwork for, for all of these things to come. But um, Jeremy, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about USDC and stablecoins and how um, what their role is both on kind of the payment side, but maybe also as they work with the decentralized finance world, because I think as Sam alluded to, uh, there is um, a lot of a lot of use of USDC um, in the world of DeFi. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I think the the problem that we set out to solve was w even when starting the company, and then eventually when the technology got to a point where you could actually build something like USDC, was how can you build a protocol for dollars on the internet? Um, how can we actually have something akin to being able to have, you know, photos like JPEGs on the internet or music files or streaming video, but actually have a protocol where anyone anywhere connected to the internet can transact with anyone else anywhere um, with the backing of something like a dollar. And um, that technology really only became viable with second generation blockchains um, to, to sort of do it well. And, and that's when we introduced, we started working on it four years ago and introduced it a few years ago. But a lot of people ask, well, what's the use case for this? And my use case is, what's the use case for a dollar? And so I, I, I really think that it's actually going to have more use cases than existing dollars because you can do more things with 
a, a digital currency dollar uh, than you can with a, a traditional dollar. You know, and we, we see this even today. You see, you know, micro payments for a piece of digital digital intellectual property on a network like an NFT on Solana to people who are using this to settle like billion dollar trades um, and everything in between. And I think, um, you know, there's there's been a bootstrapping of this in the capital markets function of crypto. And so it's been really, really important for people who are trading to have like stable settlement, irreversible settlement around the world. And I think that's that's been really key. And we're just now, as Sam was pointing out, and, and really looking at infrastructure like Solana as well, we're really just now getting to a point where this can now start to be um, connected to everyday payments. And if you have a way to, um, I mean, USDC on Solana today, as an example, you can settle a transaction in, in milliseconds, uh, you know, several hundred milliseconds. It has throughput to handle like um, real consumer scale applications and at a tiny fraction of a cent. That's incredible. And that's not with a centralized network that's running on a decentralized infrastructure. And so I think we're just now starting to see, and we're seeing this in our own business, you know, mainstream institutions, whether they be financial institutions, fintechs, consumer companies, commerce companies, connecting up to this. And I think that's that's tremendously exciting. And I think I think the timeline of one to two years is right in terms of when this will reach many, many hundreds of millions of people and then eventually billions of people. So I, I think we're we're making progress. And then, you know, the the payment utility piece is is great. And I think our vision has always been that payments is just gonna be a commodity free service on the internet. There's not really gonna be a business model in payments in the future. It, just like there's not a business model for transmitting data or emails or, or things like that. Those are just commodity-free services for everyone. Um, and the real value is going to be once you have hundreds of billions or even trillions of dollars in these stable value digital currencies, that they'll be used in capital allocation, capital markets. They'll be used really, really broadly in a lot of other applications. And so I think part of what we're excited about is um, all these building blocks in um, decentralized capital markets infrastructure, which is what like Serum represents and 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 uh, and so on, are starting to come online um, and will be you know ma major major uses of of this in the coming years. Um, Kevin, tell us a little bit about WonderFi and how you see a roadmap for bringing DeFi from this uh, sort of early stage to something where. A consumer can actually go and get a loan um, or, or do some financial service without going through a traditional intermediary. Well, what if, I hope WonderFi becomes, um, and I'm very proud of it, the, the genesis of it is that it's, it's, it's a, a use case. In, in, in our operating company, about 18 months ago, we reduced our exposure to commercial real estate and it generated a lot of cash. And we went to our cash desk and said, what can we do on short duration? And they said 20 basis points, 21 basis points. Inflation is 2%. So that was the first time I said, wait a minute, this isn't going to work. And we started to look at platforms like FTX and, and Circle to try and solve for that. That's what got me into stable coins because we started to explore that. But if you're a consumer and you're 18 years old and you're making zero in your bank of whatever account and you want to actually get some yield that keeps pace with inflation, you can't do, uh, it's not easy to set yourself up unless you're really out there in the crypto community. WonderFi is going to attempt, and I think it's gonna do a great job to really simplify this for anybody. An app-based product, you download it, you ACH X dollars into your account, it writes the contracts for you, 
It generates the 1099 for compliance. It does everything you have to do to stay compliant, even as a regular individual being taxed in whatever jurisdiction you're using it in. And that's the beginning of it. I'm very fortunate I took it public a couple of weeks ago, and now it's, and it's, it was well received. It's one of the very first public DeFi consumer platforms in the world. It's in Canada, where the regulator is very accommodative. It will soon be in Germany, and we will continue to do it around the world. And then, you know, have the different case, different use cases for it. I'm very interested in NFTs, for example, but not every NFT. I'm investing in NFTs for high-end watches. There's a community of people out there that have billions of dollars tied up in watches. They're all insane. I'm one of them. And we want to be able to have a, a way to authenticate our inventory of, of ones we own with the maker approving it. I want the D Wonderfy app to also be able to allow people to easily own those NFTs without knowing anything about you know, how to set up a wallet or anything else. It's attempting to simplify it. Now, I'm very fortunate. I have a very large social media following. I'm getting a lot of uh, you know, feedback from our, our base. Uh, Josh Richards, who's a phenom on TikTok, is an investor, as well as Sam. I think he supports the democratization of this. And we, uh, we're very excited about where this is going. But it's really about simplifying it and making it really easy. I mean, we're all in tuned and excited about crypto, but it's not easy to use, and it's nearly impossible to be compliant. You cannot afford not to disclose your capital gains and your income, if any, to the tax man. I don't care if you're 18 or 84. I'm the compliant guy. That's, I live in a, that world saying, okay, how do we get the forms out? How do we get the 1099s? How do we make sure these people never get in trouble? That's the value of Wonderful. Um, well, in the last third of the conversation here, I do want to talk about something you brought up earlier, Kevin, and that's the regulatory issues, but maybe we'll start with Sam. Sam, where do you live and why? It's a good question. And um, uh, and I, I grew up here in the States. I, uh, I worked uh, actually here in New York for a number of years uh, for Jane Street, had a great time there. Um, I have uh, was in the Bay Area until 2018. Um, and then spent a bunch of time in Hong Kong. Um, and, you know, a lot of the, the context there is, there are a number of pieces of it. One of which is that crypto is really a global business. And uh, there is a U.S. economy there. There's an Eastern economy. There's a European economy. There's an African economy. Um, and I... Especially, I think, coming from a Western background, it was really important to be able to meet um, a lot of people in person, to form those connections and those relationships, to build up a multicultural team um, that could help understand where different users are coming from. And I think you see really different demands and use cases um, from different parts of the world. I think especially you know, if you have less trust of banks in a country, you're going to start to see a lot of demand for an alternative way to store your assets. Um, and I think that, that that creates very different dynamics in different places. Um, you know, we've recently been building out our, uh, our 
offices in in a number of places um uh in uh Bahamas Gibraltar um and we also have a US operation which is at this point biggest offices in Chicago I've been flying between them um because you know helping to foster the international exchange um helping to uh foster the US exchange uh we've hired a really great leadership team um there with with Brett and Ryan and others in Chicago um I've been kind of a little more stuck than I wanted to be recently because of quarantine and covid as the world hopefully opens up um I have to be mobile one way or another um you know we're frankly trying to decide where the right places are to have the bulk of our workforce and I think that the factors that are going into that basically are a combination of who's taking the lead on crypto regulation who's taking the lead on licensing we have you know licenses in a number of jurisdictions and we're applying for licenses in a number of other jurisdictions and I think getting to your question here that's a really important piece of this is right now many many regulators are looking hard at crypto um and I think some of them are taking the lead on building out regulatory frameworks um you know some examples that obviously the MAS in Singapore we've um you know been in discussion in Singapore um you know been working on uh licensing we we don't have one but we we have we have uh we've started that process um we've i uh, been in the United States you know recently acquired a uh futures exchange license through Ledgerx which we're really excited about really excited about the uh paradigm the CFTC has i think built for a while there and i think it's been sort of living a little bit below radar um but i think that could be a huge piece of the industry going forward um because it allows for for futures um and and derivatives and frankly a lot of other contracts and you look at what Kalshi has built on top of 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 Ledgerx through the CFTC regime um you know with uh event contracts um we're really excited about that and there are a number of other regulars who are sort of popping on the map and so i think basically you know the biggest things we're looking at internationally are where is their licensing and i think especially there are a lot of countries that have started the licensing process but haven't yet built licenses that can accommodate uh futures or derivatives that haven't built licenses that can accommodate a lot of the types of products that frankly are the bulk of volume in every asset class um and then frankly honestly quarantine it's really important to us to be able to get you know employees into and out of your jurisdiction this is not something we were thinking about 3 years ago mm-hmm. when we were choosing office locations it's now like our our number 2 criteria can we get people physically in to the country if we can it's it's hard to hire it's hard to grow and i think that that's becoming like one of our top criteria for where we're going to be building out uh offices and where where people are going to be moving and frankly that's changing on a monthly basis pretty frustrating not to have sort of long term clarity on that but um i those are sort of the factors i think going forward um and uh i'm going to be help building out our regulated offices in you know probably four or five jurisdictions over the next year okay um jeremy circle is one of the most regulated crypto companies i think um in the united states you have just about as many licenses as anyone has um can you talk a little bit about your regulatory structure that you have to deal with um but then maybe also talk a little bit about there was some news last week that uh coinbase announced that they um aren't going to be moving forward with their lend product which was related to usdc maybe get your thoughts on that and i know kevin you have some thoughts on that as well 
Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I think when we got started in 2013, there was like zero regulation. Um, but the, the Treasury Department had basically said, if you're going to sit at the intersection of the banking system and virtual currency, as they called it, you needed to be a money transmitter. Um, so that was the first thing we did is we went out and got licensed in all the states as a money transmitter. It was the sort of first crypto company to get all those licenses. And, and then New York had a special license called the Bit License, and we got the first Bit License. Um, and then, you know, we did the same thing in Europe and, you know, went after an, an e-money issuer license. Um, we also operate a broker dealer and an ATS. So those are a few of the things. I think the, um, you know, the, the and then an international entity, a couple of international entities that are licensed as well. Um, but, um, uh, you know, I think the big thing is, is regulation around like global scale stable coins is definitely a moving target. Um, you know, the, the framework for kind of electronic money transmission and stored value money transmission, I think has been a good one, but clearly as these go from, you know, tens of billions to hundreds of billions to potentially trillions of dollars of value, um, banking regulators and national regulators are looking a lot more seriously at it. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why um, we're in the process of preparing an application to be a national commercial bank. Um, and, uh, but we're interested in, in, you know, full reserve banking, not fractional reserve banking. And, and uh, so there's a, a journey ahead for us on that. Um, but, um, you know, I think, you know, the, the reality is, as these, you know, get used um, at scale, and if other financial institutions want to build on top of this and do that at scale, that that structure is definitely going to evolve, we think, certainly for, for uh, you know, centrally issued stable coins like USDC. Um, I think the, um, you know, and th there are a lot of other major regulatory issues in the space, not just related to like payments and banking, obviously exchanges and securities and all that fun stuff. Um, but I, I think that maybe ties in, um, you know, we, we, um, we all know that, um, and referencing, you know, Kevin's comments as well, there's been a rapidly growing kind of lending and borrowing market in USDC itself and, and in other crypto assets. Um, but USDC has become um, a really common uh, form of, of digital currency to borrow um, and lend. And that's really grown uh, significantly. So we, uh, we, we have a product, which is a yield service uh, that's available exclusively to businesses. So we're not offering it to um, retail individuals. Um, but, but our view is that if you're going to offer a product where people are essentially making an investment um, and, uh, and, and you know, getting a, essentially like a fixed income type product, that that's a security. So we, um, we designed and, and launched our yield service as a security. Um, and it's exclusively available to accredited businesses. Uh, and it's offered through a regulatory regime as well, where there's a supervisory framework around it and around the risk management. And I think, you know, for these markets to really take hold and get scale, and if you really want this to be something that is, you know, ultimately growing into tens or hundreds of billions of dollars of borrowing and lending, it, it's going to have to, you know, fit in those, in those kinds of models. I think that's somewhat different than, than uh, some of the retail products that are out there. Kevin, did you have any thoughts on the Coinbase news last week? About regulators? The regulators. Yeah. You know, um, I, w I would make this comment. Somehow over the last, I don't know, two years, um, the popular press positioned the crypto community as an adversary to regulators globally. And that's simply not true. And it's very stupid because 
probably some large percentage of the constituency in this room is somehow tied to financial institutions one way or another. And we have not even tapped, uh, it's so nascent, there's so many institutions that don't even play in this space, although they, although they want to. And the primary reason is their compliance departments and the tone of that relationship between the crypto community and the regulator. And every week we hear another case of somebody in, you know, in, in a position of, of, of uh, power, let's call it that, that's running a large uh, crypto uh, company, striking out at the regulator. Really bad idea. Like there is zero upside in that because the, the regulator wants to solve for this because this, and I'll say it again, it's going to be the 12th sector, the S&P. There's no question about it. It's not going away and the demand is huge. The tone should be that of accommodating their concerns. I'll give you an, a case study. This NFT investment I'm making in watches, is it a security or is it a piece of art? I can't go forward till it's resolved. I can't just throw it out there and start trading it all over the place, not knowing that outcome. And so I, I, I'm willing to reach out uh, as an advocate to that one little sliver of NFTs and say to the regulator, give me guidance. Let's work together. And if it is security, tell me. I'm good. I'm good with it. I will treat it that way. I'm not fighting you on it. Just give me the rules so I can play football. You can't play football without the rules. And that's where we're at here. And the upside to solving this problem is trillions of dollars of assets that will pour into this. You want to see Bitcoin at $100,000? You got to let the regulator determine what terms they'll allow it to go into an, uh, an ETF. It's that simple. Look what happened in Canada. They got a billion dollars demand in a matter of hours in just the first Bitcoin product. And it wasn't even institutional. It was just simply retail saying, oh, it must be safe. I can buy it and put it in my my count online and the regulator said it's okay. So my thing is, as a, as a community, we have to for, form a lobby voice and say, we are here to serve and protect just like you are. Give us the rules so we can go back and play football. That's simple. Well, and as that voice, um, we represent 50 companies in Washington, DC that are part of our trade association. And we do go and speak with regulators and are actively trying to bring ideas to them that make sense. Um, because what we don't want is to just put regulation on this new system and that doesn't address the actual risks, but we need something that is appropriate and gets the same goals, but doesn't in a way that, that makes sense. But you know, one of the things that we focus on when we're interacting with regulators is it's very important to distinguish between the people developing the software and the centralized, you know, yes, crypto does have centralized intermediaries um, that are interacting with customers or taking custody of funds. But um, Anatoly, have you, can you give us your thoughts as you guys have built out and your company has helped contribute to these projects? Um, have you had regulatory concerns or do you feel um, that you're free to do what you want um, without having to think too much about regulation? Um the challenge, I think it really hits uh, teams that are trying to build and innovate in the space. So, you know, like the example that uh, Kevin brought up, this idea that every, you know, at 401, they check all the positions and check leverage and manage risk. Two guys built this as a smart contract. It runs on Solana. 
those checks happen every 400 milliseconds and they balance a bunch of lenders and a bunch of borrowers without ever taking custody of the funds. It's just a bunch of software. So what does this team do in terms of regulation, right? Like how do they, how do they like define the risk for themselves as founders? Where should they base, base their product out of like which jurisdiction? So if you're a startup and you just raised, you know, a really successful one and a half million dollar seed raise, which is massive amounts of runway for two, three people. And the compliance in the US is going to cost you three million. Compliance somewhere else is going to be much, much cheaper. Like those folks are making those choices every day. And that's really, I think, the the risks aren't in the it isn't the risks aren't that these products are not going to get built. They're going to get built because they're awesome. It's that they're going to get built as, elsewhere. And that that's really, you know. Me as somebody that's been living in the United States since my family were, you know, refugees from the Soviet Union in like '91, I, that's really sad for me to see. Like, I just want all this stuff happen to happen here. Um, we only have a couple minutes left, but I want to do one more quick question before um, we get some final thoughts from everybody. Uh, how do we see, in maybe like 30 seconds or less, uh, the traditional finance world, or I guess? TradFi, is that what we're calling it these days? Um, will they be embracing DeFi um, or is that going to be a, be a tension between those two worlds? But maybe just quick answer, Sam. I mean, I think there's a lot of work that has to be done before that decision can even be made. I think that right now DeFi isn't quite ready. Um, I am optimistic it will be in the next couple of years. Um, once it does, I think you're going to see some companies decide that they are best off working with decentralized ledgers. I think we've already started to see those. I mean, you've seen Visa, as an example, really embrace blockchain technology in, in a large number of ways. Um, and and they've, you know, seem to have made the decision that they want to try to find a way to work with, I think, you know, emerging technologies and, and grow stronger from it. Um, I'm guessing you're going to see a number of companies make those statements. I'm guessing you're going to see a number of companies not make those statements. And I think that's going to be a tacit way of saying maybe they're not going to be actively fighting against crypto, um, but they're not planning to work with DeFi. They're not planning to work with blockchain. And, you know, they're going to be sort of trying to hold their turf there. I think you're just going to see a split depending, frankly, on kind of got calls from the leadership of a lot of different companies with some going in one way, some going in another way, it's going to be messy. Um, I see we only have about five minutes left. So I'm going to just cut to the last question, um, which I want to ask of everybody. Maybe we'll start with you, Kevin. Um, so what is your prediction for where we will be 10 years from now in the crypto space since it's going to change everything? Let me tell you the, one of the reasons that I'll make it short and sweet. Um, let's say a traditional mandate such as um, I want to go long Europe. I'm going to buy 50 stocks. I have to buy Swiss francs, Euro-based stocks, and British pounds because I want to trade them on their domestic exchanges. In between me and that transaction is what's called the bane of the earth, the FX trader, the currency trader, who clips me every time I buy and sell adds zero value, zero value and sucks friction out of the system and has my entire adult life as I've traded in Europe. I can't wait until we solve this problem and give them a new career 
shining shoes because they add no value whatsoever. This is where DeFi can take us on just one use case, but it's a multi-billion dollar one. And I want to be alive to have a regulator domestically allow me a payment system to a Swiss franc back and forth if I want to trade it 50 times a day with zero FX traders. That's my mission in life, to help them find a real job. Okay. Um, Jeremy, where will we be 10 years from now? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I look at this from a couple of lenses. I think from the kind of payments, finance, kind of commerce lens, um, I mean, I, I think we'll be in a world where, um, you know, exchanging value is just this ubiquitous commodity-free thing, and people don't even think about uh, that, and things like what Kevin described will be obviously the case. Um, uh, I, I think um, I, I'm really interested in the impact on capital markets, and you know the internet has been amazing at creating these multi-sided platforms that create these incredibly like long tails, so long tail markets in advertising and content and media and retail, um, and I, I think that access to capital um, will be transformed, you know on internet capital markets, and that will be a, a radically different world than things like NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange. Um, but but I, I guess the final comment is just, um, I look at this way beyond finance. I mean, I think we this is these are operating systems that are gonna really restructure how the basic units of the economy function, corporations, everything else. Anatoly? Um, I mean, in, in 10 years, imagine a world with more than a billion people with self-custody, with cryptography, that hold their own keys and understand how to use them at the same level of people understand how to browse the internet. That, that world is gonna be un as unpredictable as you know, the internet in the 90s trying to predict that you know, sharing pictures of their cats is gonna be worth a trillion dollars. Um, it, it's just something that I feel will revolutionize, like, like Jeremy said, every industry that we know today. Um, you know, communities will never need advertisement to self-monetize. Folks can communicate and make, you know, financial decisions without any intermediaries at, at like global scale. So what you see today with 10 million users in crypto, it's really going to be a dramatic change. Sam? I think, I think the downside is the industry can't find its footing. Um, but I think in the upside case, which I'm, I'm sort of optimistic we'll be able to reach, um, you know, I don't know, 25% of activity could be on blockchains. You know, I don't think 100% will be. Um, I don't think a bagel really will be because you can't eat a blockchain or, or block it. But, um, you know, when you tweet, I think that tweet could be natively on a blockchain. When you pay for something, that payment could go through blockchain rails. When you invest, that can go through blockchain rails. You know, huge swaths of industry can be rebuilt in open, composable, efficient, uh, ways on, on, you know, on blockchain technology. And I think it could really lead to a Cambrian explosion of, of innovation. Uh, if, if it's sort of done right, and if it's done in a compliant way, and if the industry can work with regulators to make that happen. I'm going to make my own prediction. And that is that we are going to spend more money on digital goods, uh, than on physical goods, um, in our home. So. All I know, I don't know about you guys, but I usually just wear yoga clothes and I stare at a computer screen all day long. So I would like that world to be um, more reflective of my personality. So, um, well, we are right at time. So why don't we give a round of applause to our fantastic panel?